Welcome back to Allied, the podcast for everything you need to know about web and video accessibility. I'm your host, Elisa Lewis, and on today's episode, we're thrilled to welcome Kathy Martinez onto the podcast to talk about accessibility as a key component of DEI in the workplace. Kathy Martinez is an internationally recognized disability rights leader and is currently the president and CEO of Disability Rights Advocates, or DRA. Much of Kathy's prior work has focused on improving social and economic justice for people with disabilities. Kathy served as the executive director of World Institute on Disability, as U.S. Assistant Secretary of the Office of Disability Employment Policy, and most recently as Senior Vice President at Wells Fargo. We're excited to have Kathy here on Ally today, so let's jump right in. Thank you, Kathy, for joining us on Allied. So to begin, I know that you've held major accessibility roles at incredible institutions, which we'll get into a bit later on in the episode, but I'd love to learn a little bit about what sparked your passion for this work. So not only accessibility in general, but also in workplace DEI and supporting disabled people to pursue employment. Well, thank you for uh, having me on the show. It's really a pleasure. Um, Well, I was born blind. I come from a a pretty large Latino family and um, I grew up as a blind person in a sighted world. Um, My experience uh, started quite a while back, way before the ADA uh, was passed. Um, I would say that what sparked my interest in in civil rights, human rights, um, disability justice, and justice in general was that um, my lived experience as somebody who's Latino and blind, and uh, or I should say Latinx and blind, um, and then later uh, I came out as a lesbian, um, just the intersectional ex- experience of my own lived experience or the intersectionality of my own lived experience, you know, um, kind of spurred me on to become um, a disability rights uh, and social justice advocate. So um, I would say that in my my early, in my teens, um, in the seventies, which was quite a while back, I started out by really identifying with my Latinx heritage. Um, My family lived near, strawberry fields and orange groves where there were lots of folks, um, farm workers um, picking the fruit. And I, when I would walk by, I would hear disputes between the people who weighed the fruit and people who were getting paid at the weigh stations. Um, I became active in the UFW youth movement. So I was you know, really um, proud of my Latino heritage and proud of um, you know, my family. Then I kind of became a women's rights activist um, in the later 70s and early 80s. Um, And then finally, I I found the disability rights movement. Um, So I I think just, you know, we're all we all have intersectional identities. um, And I didn't feel like I wanted to hide any of my identities, um, even though in some situations, of course, I had to. uh, But, you know, bringing just um, realizing that disability impacts every dimension of diversity, 
and and realizing that you know the experiences of people who have uh, acquired their disabilities is very different than somebody like me who was born with a disability. Um, I, I just you know I, I got involved in the disability rights movement um, because I knew that it impacted everybody, no matter race, you know, religion, creed, class, uh, sexual orientation. Um, and, and I have been involved, you know, for probably the last almost 40 years. Um, my focus has been economic justice, really, um, discovering that it's very hard to survive in a capitalist uh, environment um, if you don't have money, which most, you know, most people with disabilities don't. Um, so that really has been my focus. Yeah, thank you for sharing all that. I'm curious, um, you know, you, it sounds like your activism really started pretty early on in your life. Um, was there anyone or, you know, that you saw growing up who was an activist or any role models or did it really kind of, uh, you know, spark from inside? You know, I had so many role models. My parents were role models. Um, my mom fought very hard for me. And I should say, I also have a blind sister. We are the two middle kids of six children. Um, my mom, um, both my parents, but I would say my mom in particular because my dad had to work. Um, and at the time, you know, she was taking care of, of us. Um, she really was um, a role model for me in that, you know, she, she really fought for Peggy and I to have access to the best experiences we could as kids. Um, and, you know, that included going to mainstream schools, starting from when we were in kindergarten and um, really, you know, having the experience of dealing with kids our age, um, starting from when we were, you know, five years old. So we had age-appropriate experiences. Um, another person, I, I just had so many, but there was one woman um, when I was in the eighth grade who um, was a, I guess we called them hippies then, but um, she was a student teacher in my junior high and was you know, very politically conscious and active. And in those days, um, it was hard to find books about things like farm workers' rights or civil rights if you were blind. Most of the books on tape were either, you know, classics or religious texts. So when I was in the eighth grade, she read to me a book on tape called Sweatshops in the Sun, and that was about child labor. Um, she also read um, Seven Days That Shook the World, and, and she read The Jungle. Um, all, all of those books really did impact me. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, I, I have been so lucky to have some amazing mentors, um, both disabled and non-disabled, um, men and women alike. Um, and, um, you know, they have really helped to guide me, um, but also, you know, I, there has to be like an inner desire to proceed and move forward and learn. And um, I'm, I'm, I love learning, I'm, you know, I consider myself a lifelong learner and, um, and I, I just, I really enjoy solving problems um, or making situations better. Um, and I think, you know, that's why we're all in this, um, you know, in, 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 the, in the fight for justice for everyone. Absolutely. So 
you know, kind of along those lines of, of making um, things more just and, and fighting, you know, to make things more equal and better for individuals. I know that a lot of your work um, surrounds the idea of disability as an essential component of workplace diversity and inclusion. Can you share a little bit about what's um, gained when diversity, equity, inclusion, or DEI in the workplace includes disability as a focus? Well, first of all, um, I think we have to all um, acknowledge that we, most of us, I would say 98% of us have a connection to disability, whether it's a family member, a friend, a sibling, or whether we're disabled ourselves. The other thing I think is really important to know is that among um, marginalized or minority communities, the incidence of disability is higher. So due, you know, due to poor healthcare, high injury jobs, uh, poverty, we know that you know, poverty and disability are interconnected. Disability is a consequence of poverty and poverty is definitely a consequence of, of disability. Um, so I think, you know, first of all, we have to understand that, that, dis that we're connected to disability um, in, in so many ways. And disability crosses all class, gender, sexual orientation lines, right? Um, it, 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 it's the only minority that a person can join and usually, you know, that's, it's not by choice. So given all that, um, and given that the laws have changed uh, and people with disabilities are, you know, are, are more and more a part of our communities. And um, we can see after 31 years of the ADA that uh, the, the physical society, the physical aspects of our society are more accessible. So you see ramps, curb ramps, you see braille on elevators, you see the crawl on the bottom of your TV screen if you go to a bar. Um, you know, the print crawl that, that tells the news or the sports scores. So all these things are a, a function of the Americans with Disabilities Act. The weaving disability into the diversity agenda of any company or any corporation or any nonprofit organization is really extending um, awareness, access, and inclusion and belonging to a, a group of people, you know, that have been kind of forced out of society for forever. Um, we also know that people with disabilities, you know, given technology, so we have the physical aspects of, of inclusion and access, and we have the digital aspects of inclusion and as, uh, access, meaning, you know, we want our web uh, content to be accessible. We want our um, digital applications and software to be accessible. And then there's the cultural aspect of, of inclusion. And you can't legislate attitude, right? But I think as we weave disability into our culture and disability awareness into our culture, um, everybody benefits, right? Everybody benefits from things that are created originally for people with disabilities. Take curb ramps as an example. I know that's a kind of an old school example, but people definitely use curb ramps, even if they're not in wheelchairs. Um, and I know everybody, all of your listeners know examples of that. Um, things like instant messaging. I mean, 
There's so many things that were developed for people with disabilities that have become kind of standard operating practice. Weaving the disability community um, into um, a corporation's diversity agenda also means that they're taking advantage of uh, an, un an untapped workforce. Um, you know, the, the Americans with Disabilities Act is 31 years old. So there's, you know, like two generations almost that have been raised um, to assume that they will work, right? They've been mainstreamed in, in public schools and their peers also assume that people with disabilities can and will work. Um, so it, it's, it's like there's a, an analogy, a blueberry muffin analogy, you know, you wanna bake it in, not bolt it on. So when you, you're creating a blueberry muffin, you know, and you're thinking of access or you're thinking of inclusion and belonging, you know, you don't put the blueberries in at the last minute. You don't put the blueberries in as an afterthought. You bake the blueberries in so that they're a part of the muffin. So when it comes to disability inclusion, we wanna develop systems that are inclusive, are welcoming, are safe, and where people can thrive, no matter if they have a disability or not. Yeah, I think you made a lot of great points here. Um, I, I definitely think that, you know, you mentioned we're all connected to disability. And I think that this is particularly true in the cases of indivisible disabilities or sorry, in, invisible disabilities um, or, or those, you know, a lot of individuals won't disclose that they have a disability, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they, you know, couldn't benefit or don't need certain accommodations. Um, so I think that's a really, really great reminder. I wanted to ask, you know, you mentioned um, kind of getting into this untapped workforce. And one thing that I would love to get your thoughts on is accessible hiring practices. Um, you know, a lot of people are really becoming aware of um, being more inclusive in their hiring. And sometimes it's, you know, in order to accommodate specific needs, um, it's helpful to know of course, what those needs are, but how can we navigate respecting an individual's privacy while also ensuring that we are meeting their needs? Are there any sort of tips or best practices um, that you're able to share? Well, first, in the first of all, um, you know, it starts with an accessible website, and that means that the website can be accessed by a screen reader for people who are visually impaired. Um, it also may mean that some of the protocols around hiring practices may need to change. For example, um, let's say you are hiring somebody to be a cashier and there's a test they have to take for making change. Um, sometimes those tests time out. So if you have you know, any kind of a disability where um, it, it takes you longer to type or move your mouse, very often those tests time out um, and it has nothing to do with the fact that you can't you know, count change. It has to do with the fact that, that, um, you know, that, that maybe the time should change on those, uh, those pre-offered tests. Um, another thing that's, that's happening, I think we have to keep our eye on is artificial intelligence. How are we programming AI bots to screen in or screen out people. Um, I think it's really critical to, for companies to say, if you require an accommodation, 
please contact X. Now, your point about privacy is a really interesting one. Um, you know, like you said earlier, people with non-evident disabilities don't have to disclose um, in the same way that somebody with an evident disability like mine does. Um, so I know that, you know, in previous workplaces, um, I have, you know, we, we've, we've really made an effort to um, do our best to educate hiring managers about how to accommodate folks um, who may not interview the same, <clears throat> the same way as us. We created a community of practice for hiring managers so they could ask questions that they might be afraid to ask publicly. And it was a very safe space. Um, um, I served as a, you know, as, as kind of a, a resource for folks that were interested in, in asking questions, um, you know, if, if they didn't feel comfortable ask, asking publicly, as did other people uh, who were disabled. Um, but I, I think, you know, applying for jobs, I mean, especially now that, that um, the pandemic has proven that people can work su successfully from home, um, you know, it's important to realize that there are people with disabilities out there who are able and willing to work, who are good um, employees. And, you know, with an accommodation, um, they can do their jobs. I mean, I think it's also important to realize that we all require accommodations. Um, our accommodations are just standard operating practice. So, you know, people come into a a meeting assuming there'll be chairs, they come in assuming there'll be uh, loud mics and loudspeakers, they come in assuming there'll be lights. I mean, these are accommodations. And, you know, when we work, people assume they'll have, um, <clears throat> you know, appropriate chairs to sit in and um, laptops or, or computers or cell phones. Um, but for people with disabilities, I think if we view accommodations as productivity tools, um, the you know, the kind of negative association with the term accommodations will change. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. Um, I mean, I'm even thinking, you know, now I'm, I'm sitting at my desk and I have a special microphone that I'm using because it's better quality for a podcast. Or, you know, if you have a, um, I'm on a laptop, but I have another monitor. Um, so I think that's a really great point. And, you know, we all have these different tools um, that just make us more efficient um, or more, you know, sort of functional at our jobs. And, and they really are all just different types of accommodations. So kind of getting, you know, past the hiring process, I love to shift gears a little bit um, and talk about DEI in office culture in general. Um, you know, I think that many non-disabled employees want to be caring and compassionate allies in the workplace, um, but again, kind of struggle knowing what's okay or not okay to ask. Um, and these are all topics, you know, when, when we talk about DEI, a lot of the topics are sort of considered um, historically taboo, um, but you know, being that companies really want to be more inclusive um, and do more with accessibility, um, what, what advice do you have for them? Well, I think the, the first thing um, um, to remember is that it's, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Um, you know, the finish line will move as, as technology advances and as workplace 
culture changes. I mean, who would have thought, you know, two years ago that we would all work from home, right? Um, and have it be successful for the most part. People with disabilities have been begging companies to allow them or allow us to work from home um, as an accommodation. And, you know, most companies have said, no, you know, we need the in-person connection. Well, I do believe that it's proven that people can work from home successfully. Um, you know, I, I also believe that, that connection is important. Um, and, and for some people with disabilities, you know, isolation is a big issue. So I don't wanna say um, in any way, you know, hire people with disabilities and assume that we'll all work from home. Many people, you know, want to be in the office. They want that connection. Um, you know, the water cooler, you go out to lunch, the catch people in the hall connection. So the, I think one of the first things that has to happen when any change takes place is that people have to feel safe to make mistakes. Um, I'm somebody who I will admit does get tired sometime uh, of, of constantly educating people. Um, but I also remember that people are asking questions not out of malice or bad intentions, but they because they just don't know. A culture of bringing, uh, a, you know, having people feel safe. And the way to do that is to, to have conversations about disability. Um, and at my former employer, you know, we, I, I, first of all, when they hired me, I was very clear that I would not be the, the disabled token. Like, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it isn't about one person. So, um, and, and I don't know if, if they really were going down that road, but I made it very clear that, you know, my role and my goal was, you know, not to just attend conferences and, you know, and kind of be the, the token Latino blind person. But my, my, my goal was really to build a culture where people with um, a variety of disabilities could, could come out, could thrive, could, um, you know, get, could advance. So I think some tips would be, one, create a group of, of people who, are, um, who represent lots of different types of disability, non-evident disabilities, evident disabilities, um, um, who are willing to talk about their experience. People learn so much from stories. I think people are very interested in the how of disability. So how do you do that? How did you, uh, you know, how do you, uh, how do you respond to 200 emails a day? Um, I, th I think when, when I first came, you know, to when I was in a first in a corporate setting, um, people were nervous. They were afraid to do the wrong thing. They were afraid to, to ask the wrong questions. So they were a little shy. Um, but when they got to know me, you know, they relaxed. Um, I, I think humor is a good thing. Um, um, and, and I like, I, I really like, you know, being on a team, working with people with different opinions, different strengths. Um, so I, I seek that out in my work life. Um, so having people discuss or ha having people with a variety of disabilities being willing to tell their stories, having opportunities for the, you know, for the staff of the organization to listen to those stories and ask questions. I also think that creating a space for hiring managers to ask questions, we, we created a community of practice um, 
where people could you know, ask questions, where we had speakers. Um, and I think the hiring managers learned a lot. Um, don't, I think one thing not to do is just talk about disability during Disability Employment Awareness Month. Remember that disability is a part of every other culture in the world. So weaving disability in stories around being Latinx or around being African-American or acknowledging you know, that we have people with disabilities in our midst, in, in, our, in different cultures um, is, is really important. Uh, I think um, you know, one thing, um, affinity, affinity groups are, are, are critical because people can share information um, during you know, off hours or kind of in unstructured ways. So having people with disabilities, having you know, people who are connected to disabilities, parents, siblings, companions, and people who are allies, who really wanna be allies um, and, and, and support um, the idea that um, you know, disability is a natural part of the human condition. It should be woven into our, you know, our awareness and accessibility should be woven into the workplace. Um, they play an, a very important role in advancing disability inclusion. Yeah, I I think you know that makes a lot of sense. Um, you touched on a, a few really great points that I just kind of want to reiterate. I think one really being the ex exhaustion that comes with educating um, others on kind of your own um, you know situation, whether whether that be about disability or race um, or gender identity, um, you know, and, and a lot of people want to learn, but but kind of what what can we do to really learn um, in a way where we're not placing the burden back on the individual to educate us? I think that, you know, that's something that a lot of people struggle with. Um, and there really is a balance that needs to that needs to be struck. Um, I think the other thing is it it is, you know, you made the point that um, with DEI, it's a, a marathon, not a sprint. Um, but because of that, it really does, um, you know, as you're kind of ramping up, uh, people can definitely feel like they're being tokenized um, kind of along that curve. Um, and I think, you know, I think that it's, it's great that people are starting somewhere, um, but it, it's definitely a little bit of a, a rocky road to kind of get um, to the point where it's really ingrained in, in the organization um, and, you know, and, and the people of the organization. Um, I think that's something, you know, that I've, I've heard a lot of organizations really struggling with, um, particularly over the last, you know, year, year and a half when it's become um, a much bigger focus again. Yeah, I think, um, the, you know, people always ask me, what's the best training um, regarding hiring people with disabilities? And my answer is hire people with disabilities. And it's important to, to understand that when you hire people with disabilities, you don't need to hire people just at the entry level position. It, it's often thought that people with disabilities are only um, you know, capable of, of entry level work. And you know, that just isn't true. Um, you know, in my, in my, former, um, my former employer, Wells Fargo, I was hired as a senior vice president. Um, I did not know any other senior vice presidents when I went in. Um, to um, to the bank, you know, 
Um, but as I got to know people, you know, I realized that people did have um, non, some people had evident disabilities, some people had non-evident disabilities. And, you know, the way that people came out, and there was quite an increase in the number of people who identified as having a disability um, in the six years that I was there. And, and the reason is because we made people feel comfortable, safe, and, 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 and the, you know, different levels of the bank were part and parcel of the, the cultural change, right? Like we can't legislate attitude, even though sometimes I know we, we'd like to. Um, but I think for me, I always say that attitude is caught, not taught. So when I was a young kid and my siblings used to bring their friends home, their friends had never seen a blind person before. So they, they didn't really know what to do and they didn't wanna ask the wrong questions. So very often they would watch how my siblings treated me and Peggy, my sister, and they would just fall, follow along. So, you know, I came, like I said, from a large Latino family. We got teased just as anybody, much as anybody else did. You know, we gave it back just as hard as anybody else did. And, and, and my siblings' friends saw this. And so they kind of copied how my siblings treated us. And, and I always thought, you know, that's, that's how attitudes change. You see somebody um, working alongside you that might have a disability. They, they're contributing what they contribute. You contribute what you can contribute. You know, very often I would help my colleagues um, in things that, you know, they weren't good at or didn't want to do. And very often they'd help me. So I think, you know, there's, there's kind of a stigma about people with disabilities in the workplace. And I think it's changing, but it, I think it's, it still exists. You know, we're kind of, what do they say? Takers, fakers. Um, and, and I think it is changing, but I think there's still some, um, you know, some people who have not seen a person with a disability contribute and, and participate and, you know, really um, bring a perspective that is valuable. Um, you know, for so long, our lives have not been valued, whether we work or not. Um, and I'm not saying that, you know, only people that work have value. I, I don't believe that at, at all. But I mean, given that we're talking about the workplace, um, I think when people see that we are able to contribute, um, you know, we, we show up, whether it's, you know, online or in person, um, you know, we produce and, um, and we can be a part of a team. I think, you know, that's when, you know, attitudes change. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, and, you know, I think I, I was going to ask kind of if you had any um, tips for smaller companies um, that maybe don't have the resources in establishing hiring, um, you know, programs. But I, I think you kind of already mentioned that the the biggest thing you would suggest is, is start hiring uh, people with disabilities. I think that's a great point. I, I think, you know, there's a lot of things on the internet. Um, there's definitely resources for people like the Job Accommodation Network. I don't know if I, um, you know, I, I don't usually plug companies, but they're a great resource if you want to find out how to accommodate a wide variety of disabilities. Um, you know, there's been some, a lot of conversation now about, you know, mental, mental disabilities and how to accommodate them. Um, mostly people with mental disabilities require uh, schedule change, you know, uh, modifications to their schedule. My disability is, you know, accommodated by a screen reader, by you know, I might need a mobility lesson, I might need help 
if I'm in a meeting with some with with my team, I know that my former team members, um, you know, would always help me with buffets because buffets suck for blind people. Um, I, you know, and and but but if you have a non-evident disability, um, it, you know, people, if especially if people don't know what you need, um, they, they, you know, like the company won't be able to accommodate you and. You know, it's one thing that the LGBTQ community and the, and the disability community have in common is if you have a non-evident disability, you know, you don't necessarily have to come out and nobody will know. Um, the other thing I think it's important to, to say is um, very often people with disabilities are the only people with a disability in their family. So again, like the LGBTQ community, um, you know, they are the culture is not transferred through their family. So, you know, there is a thriving and, and, you know, viable disability culture, just like there's a thriving and viable gay culture, but very often people have to go outside their families to find it. And I think one of the things um, that, it, that I saw happening um, is that, you know, when people would, would identify as having, let's just say a non-evident disability, and other people with non-evident uh, disabilities would feel more comfortable coming out or at least you know I, identifying as even having a disability. So it's like success begets success, right? The more comfortable people feel, the more they can bring their whole self to work. Absolutely. I'm curious um, if you know of any statistics or, or even anecdotes um, about the sort of cost of accommodations for an organization versus the cost of losing out on, on qualified employees when, um, you know, when there's a lack of hiring in the disability community. Well, I mean, there's a, you know, a pretty old statistic that says most accommodations cost under $500. Um, I know that, you know, I'm one of the people whose accommodations cost more than that. Uh, I use a screen reading program and that's about $1,000. Um, but I mean, I think if you look at it this way, just think of the fact that um, if, if, you know, if you're fortunate to, um, to work and you're, you're able to get off benefits, you know, you're saving the, you're, you know, you're contributing to the economy, um, by, you know, if you're able to get off benefits, you're not taking money from the government, but also you're, you're paying taxes. So what's the return? I mean, the ROI in my mind is huge. I, I also believe that it, we, because the world is not built for us, um, we bring a lot of uh, gifts to a company. So, you know, we, we're very strategic. We're used to solving problems because we've had to our whole lives. Um, and so, I think those things are, are immeasurable. You know, you, how do you measure that? Um, but, you know, just getting somebody on, a, on the payroll, you know, uh, I mean, sometimes people, I've heard people say the disability community is the only community that wants to pay taxes. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but, you know, definitely um, we are, you know, when we're working, we're contributing not just to our workplaces, but the economy as a whole. Absolutely. I'm curious um, if you could share more about your current work with the disability rights advocates. Um, you know, they're an incredible organization doing really high impact litigation. Um, it's pretty different from your previous work at Wells Fargo or the Office of Disability Employment Policy at uh, U.S. Department of Labor. 
So how are you continuing to push for disabled employment at the DRA? And are there any initiatives there that you can share with us that you're working on? Sure. So disability rights advocates, as you said, is a high, amp- high impact disability um, nonprofit law firm. Uh, um, the DRA has been around for 28 years. Um, we litigate, um, you know, like systems change um, work. We, um, we don't typically take, you know, individual cases. Uh, we don't sue for damages or rarely sue for damages and we don't charge our clients. So um, for the last 28 years, DRA has put the meat on the bones of the ADA, um, you know, through case law um, to improve um, access for people with disabilities in healthcare, in uh, you know, physical access, uh, internet access, emergency preparedness, education, we're working with co-counsel um, in, in a variety of cases um, against prisons, prisons who charge their, the inmates for their prosthesis. Um, and um, you know, we also um, won a case um, against the Immigration and Customs and Enforcement where uh, we were able to get some uh, folks who were in the detention centers either released or sent to less crowded places because of, of COVID. Um, so our work spans a, a wide variety of issues. The goal really is to create a more accessible society for people with disabilities. Um, in terms of employment, um, we're a pretty small shop, but you know we definitely um, are very aware of our responsibility to quote walk the walk or roll the roll or however you want to put it, um, you know, to provide accommodations, to provide a welcoming environment uh, for people with all types of disabilities. And we learn every day, you know, again, the finish line moves, right? Um, We learn every day uh, how to get better. I don't think we'll ever be perfect, but, um, um, you know, like like we're struggling with, you know, how to uh, launch our hybrid model to be more inclusive of all types of disabilities, um, you know, have people working at home, but then have, you know, folks come in to have some in-person time. Um, so we're very mindful of the fact that, you know, we have lots of different needs, um, but, and we feel confident that we'll be able to accommodate folks to do the best work they can do so they can bring their whole selves to work and be as productive as possible. Yeah, I, I think the um, sort of movement to hybrid is is going to be a challenge that we're all in together. You know, I think at this point, um, like we talked about earlier, we've kind of over the, a la- the last year and a half, you know, out of necessity, really um, learned a lot and um, adapted a lot for being fully remote. Um, and now, you know, it's something that we've seen as well. Um, on our end of like really trying to navigate what it looks like when you have some people um, together in a room and some people remote, um, you know, there, there's a whole slew of, of new challenges. Um, but, you know, I think that um, everyone's kind of motivated at this point to um, figure out what works. So that's, that's a pretty exciting place to be at. Um, I'm curious, what have been some of the most significant changes in workplace DEI that you've seen over the years? And how do you see 
um, disability as part of the workplace DEI initiatives growing maybe in the next 10 years or so? So um, not until relatively recently um, was disability thought of as a DEI issue. You know, typically, um, you know, if, if we go back to the 30s when Roosevelt um, signed the Employment for Handicap legislation, Roosevelt, uh, the, the government realized that people with disabilities could work and it was okay to pay a sub-minimum wage. Um, we hopefully are moving out of that era. There's still people with disabilities that are earning sub-minimum wage. Um, and, you know, that comes from valuing people with disabilities less, right? Or devaluing us. Um, then I think, you know, the pendulum moved slightly to the, a place where disability was, uh, hiring a person with disability was the quote, right thing to do, right? But it was typically led by one person in the company who probably had a disabled kid or a connection to disability. So they would create all these amazing programs or, you know, I should say they would create programs, but then when they left, the program would fall apart. Um, so it essentially disability was special. And I always say that you cannot put disability on the special shelf or when budgets get cut, the special shelf falls down and anything special goes away. So we're now in a place where, where companies and, and the disability rights movement um, is saying, saying disability should be a part of the diversity agenda um, because disability crosses all lines of diversity uh, dimension. Um, and that means that we have to take into account physical, digital, and cultural accessibility. We have to take into account that disability can happen at any life stage. And, it, and the largest uh, age group of people with disabilities are folks over 50. So baby boomers um, are turning 65 at the rate of 10,000 every day in that population. Um, and many of us are still in the workforce and many of us will acquire a disability. Um, so there's, you know, disability is a natural part of the human condition. It is something that I, I think it's, it's a dimension of diversity that cannot be put on a special shelf or treated as something special. Um, it is, it's a, a dimension of diversity that needs to be woven in to the company's DNA. Um, and I think in the, in the next 10 years, what, what we're seeing um, outside of corporations is that the disability rights movement and social justice movements are beginning to talk to each other for so long. Um, you know, I would go to a Latinx event and there would be no accessibility. And I would go, you know, as a disability rights leader, um, I was one of the few non-white leaders for, for a long time. So I would say, you know, the last five to 10 years, um, the two uh, disability rights and social justice movements um, are beginning to talk to each other. For example, the Ford Foundation has done some really amazing work. And I disability organizations in general and social justice organizations in, in general have been identifying 
the, the building bridges uh, between the two communities as a priority. Um, you know, we're seeing philanthropy get more involved in disability, whereas, you know, even 10 years ago, so many of the large foundations said we don't do disability. So it wasn't seen as a civil rights or a human rights issue. It was seen as a charity issue or a, you know, a, the special kind of a special issue that somebody would take on as a personal project. Um, but now we're, we're, you know, we're seeing the social model of disability um, take hold. The social model essentially says that access um, is, you know, is, is, respons is the responsibility of society. So providing access is the responsibility of a society that values the participation of its disabled citizens. Thank you for sharing. Um, it's, it's been really great having you on the podcast today. And before we wrap up, um, I would love if you could let our listeners know where they can find you and connect with you online. Oh, it'd be my pleasure to hear from your listeners. So um, you can reach me at kmartinez at dralegal.org. And I'm very happy to be in touch with folks. Awesome. Thank you. Well, thanks again. Um, like I said, it was really great having you on the podcast. It was a pleasure to learn from you today and, and chat with you. Um, super excited about it and hope to connect again in the future. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It was really fun. Thanks for listening to Allied. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave us a rating and review. To catch all the latest on accessibility, visit www.3playmedia.com backslash allied podcast. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.